Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast series in which we look at the rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and joining me as always is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, lecturer in Ancient Mediterranean Studies at La Trobe University. Also joining us is Sarah Midford, a lecturer at La Trobe University who is completing her PhD in Classics. This is episode IV, Caesar's Triumph. When we last left Caesar, he'd spent years expanding the borders of Rome, bringing Gaul and the Germanic tribes into the Roman Empire. And he's now reached the time where he can return home as a conquering hero and receive all the accolades that come with it. Sarah Midford. The greatest thing that one could hope for after a military campaign in Rome was a a triumphal procession. So when Caesar came home, he was obviously hoping for a triumphal procession. There was a lot of things that happened in between him finishing his campaign and him receiving this triumphal procession, but he did. And the Gallic triumph was the most spectacular of a quadruple triumph that he celebrated for all his campaigns. This four-day procession actually happened over a period of about a month and it was one of the most spectacular triumphal processions that Rome had ever seen. So basically he was saying... I'm better than everyone else that's come before me. Describe a triumph for me. What what are we talking here? Are we talking crowds of people cheering on, all the soldiers marching, Caesar leading the way, waving from the top of a horse? Well, he was in a quadriga, which is a four-horse chariot. The four horses would have been abreast, and it was a particular type of chariot that was associated with the gods. It was a special chariot. But the procession itself was actually a religious ritual and a payment to Jupiter for the benefit that had come to Rome from the war that had been won. Before anyone left campaigning in Rome, they would go to the Temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus on the Capitoline Hill, and they would pay sacrifice and say, please help me. I'm going to war and I want to win. And when they won, their duty was to come back to Rome and to thank Jupiter Optimus Maximus for the win. So the triumphal procession was actually a religious ritual and a religious payment to Jupiter for the good fortune. And because it was religious, it was highly ritualised. So the order of the procession actually started with the spoils, it started with the captive soldiers, the Senate, and finally the last person to come in would be the triumphator. It built and built and built and people got more and more excited. People would come in from out of town for this. Certainly for Caesars, a lot of people came in from out of town. According to Suetonius, there were so many people in the city for Caesar's triumphal processions that quite a few got trampled to death. It was basically a giant mosh pit for the duration of these processions. And then Caesar came in on his quadriga and he would have lapped up all the glory, headed straight for the temple of Jupiter Optimus Maximus and paid that sacrifice he owed to the gods for his victory on the way, slaying all the prisoners in the prison and depositing a lot of the spoils in the treasury, a lot of the spoils he got to keep for himself. Right, so there was a real kind of, it was like a victory lap of Rome. Absolutely. Yeah. When you say slay all the prisoners, these are the people that they'd taken captive in the war. They almost certainly wouldn't have brought all of the captives home, but a representative number and all of the high-profile ones, the Mm. chieftains, they're really important. So um, Vercingetorix would have been there. He was. How long was he a captive at that point then? Kept alive for six years. Wow because it was a complicated process for Caesar to get his triumph. And so Vercingetorix had to be just kept there as this trophy so that he could be killed on that day. Yeah, a couple of hours on the street so people can have a look at him 
six years worth of feeding, moving. Which is another reason you wouldn't bring every single captive back. Mm. You have to feed them and keep them alive yeah. until you But the kill more them. that you did bring back, the greater you were showing off your wealth. So yes. if you had a lot of prisoners in your procession, then you were basically saying, I have the wealth to be able to keep these people alive for this long and also to then expend their lives just for the spectacle of it. In earlier triumphs, not in Caesar's triumph, often if there weren't that many spoils, they would bring back people and vice versa. So if they had a lot of spoils, then maybe they wouldn't bring back quite so many people. They might bring back representatives or people in national costume. It was about representing what the place looked like. In, in, in a sense, the Triumph was a, was a sort of a visual newsreel of the local culture, of the territory, of the people, their resources. Basically, anything that was different to Roman, they would put in this procession deliberately to show that it was different. So our main source of the Gallic Wars is the writings of Caesar. How much do we have on his triumph? There are a couple of sources that give us some detail. There's nothing really contemporary that talks about his triumph at all, unfortunately. And by later, for example, Suetonius, who is a biographer, and his longest biography is that of Julius Caesar, he is writing probably around 120 CE, so that's you know getting close to 200 years after the fact. So how much can you trust? Well, a lot of them, I think, are commenting on the opulence that was going on in a triumph, regardless of who's writing about any triumph in any time period. It's usually a commentary on foreignness being brought into Rome and wealth being brought into Rome and how that's actually making the Roman people softer and more opulent and not as good as their traditional austere ancestors. This extends to Caesar's triumphs as well, and especially in later periods because of the transition between the Republican period and the Imperial period that happens around the time of Julius Caesar, people are actually making more of a commentary on the changes that are being brought in in these processions than they are about what's actually in them. So when they talk about ivory models of cities that have been carved in Caesar's triumph, they're saying that this is just a waste of money. Like, why would you carve a city out of ivory? I mean, yeah, it looks cool for the day, but what are you going to do with it afterwards? I mean, there are two things to bear in mind. One, that Suetonius wasn't just making this up nearly 200 years later. He had other earlier sources to look at, and he was actually an imperial secretary, a secretary to the Emperor Hadrian, so he would have had good access to any sources that there were. But as Sarah says, they're very much writing in retrospect in the Mm. knowledge of what happened afterwards. The triumph is a very unique and rare honour in Rome. It's only offered if a general fulfils a huge list of criteria that are set out by the Senate. And then the final criteria is the Senate agrees to the award. It's a long process. Sometimes people are sitting outside of Rome for years with their army, with their captives, with foreign animals just so they can have this honour. And it happens less than once a year throughout the Republic, much less than once a year throughout the Republic. So to be awarded this honour is is an amazing right. It is so amazing because it is the only time in Rome where one person gets to stand alone with power. So the Roman system of government, the highest office you can hold is a consulship and you always hold that with another consul there's two people in power at the same time and you're not allowed to command an army while you're in the city of Rome and you have power 
you can only command an army when you are outside the city of Rome and you're not allowed to, to, to bring that army anywhere near Rome. So there's a real distinction yeah. between civic and military. They actually talk about going into the toga, that's your civic costume, yep. and going into the general's uniform, which they call the sargum, the military cloak. And that is meant to be an absolute divide. You're either doing the citizen role or you're doing the military And you've got role. this triumphal robe, which is the gap between these two spaces because it is the robe that you wear when you have both civic and military power. And you stand in your quadriga and you ride through the streets of Rome in this special purple outfit. And purple is a colour that is normally reserved for the gods. And you have a slave that's standing behind you who is reminding you constantly by whispering in your ear to look behind you, which in Rome means to look to the future because the future comes from behind. So look behind you and remember that you are just a man. So you are constantly being reminded that you are a mortal while you're having this triumphal procession because you're wearing the clothes of the gods and you have civic and military power at the same time. And in addition to this, the slave is standing behind him, whispering in his ear, and he's holding a golden crown over the triumphator's head. So he's almost a king as well. So he, is, he has all of this power for the duration of this triumphal procession. And what Caesar does, he takes little elements out of this procession that's only supposed to last for a day. First of all, his lasts for four. Second of all, he starts wearing the triumphal costume around to different festivals and he starts getting presented crowns and people start calling him Rex or King. Now, Caesar never accepts the crown and he never calls himself king, he says things like, I am not king, I am Caesar. So many kings have taken the word Caesar to mean king in future societies. The word Kaiser comes from king, the word Tsar comes from Caesar as well. So effectively, he's starting to, to sort of bleed this very, very ritualised, very contained special ceremony into his daily life and the power that comes with it it eventually becomes too much. Is that ego, is that seeded during his triumph or is that something that you can also see coming through in his books? I mean, I know that you said that it's propaganda, but he does seem to get a big head as a result of that and being the slave who has to tell you that you are just a normal man must be the worst job in the world. I don't <laughs> envy that slave. <laughs> but is, is there signs of Caesar the person seated in his writing? I don't think that he does give us signs of it there. I don't think he wants us to think of him as adopting that role. While he's on campaign, he's on campaign. He gives us this idea that he's entirely single-minded about this campaign. So he rarely mentions Italy. Okay, so the campaign happens basically during the summer, spring, summer, early autumn. And his job, by the way, is his job is not to be in Gaul, I should mention. His job is to be back in the province, Illyricum and Cisalpine Gaul. He's governor of those places. You could say that what he's telling us in these books is going beyond what he's meant to, but he doesn't emphasize that. He emphasizes the geographical and military conquest, but he doesn't talk about the way that this might relate to his relationship with Rome, I suppose you could say, or his relationship with the Republican institutions. In fact, he rarely mentions what's going on in Rome, and there's a lot going on in Rome at this point. He's got people kind of standing in for him or keeping his name alive back in Rome. They're not mentioned. When he goes back to usually to Italy, or at least to Cisalpine Gaul every winter, that's all he says. I went back and I 
carried out the assizes, it's usually translated as, which means he went back and, and judged some cases, which is one of his jobs. He, he did his job as governor back in the winter. Yeah. But he's not giving us really any impression that he's developing a different role. All he's telling us is that he's going beyond what any military commander's done before. Because this is part of his propaganda war with Pompeius Magnus, Pompey the Great. And Pompey had had great conquests in the East and great success in that and, you know, had amassed a huge amount of money and authority through that. And it will be Pompey with whom he has the civil war when he comes back into Italy at the end of the Gallic War. They're carrying out this propaganda war in all kinds of ways through their conquests abroad and then through, while Caesar's away, Pompey has a huge building plan in Rome, including most famously Pompey's theatre. Uh, he builds the first permanent theatre at Rome, and you know that, that'll make him popular with the people because it's an entertainment structure. So that they're carrying it out in different ways, through public building, through the wars and their conquests, and with Caesar through his writings. So I think it's much more about trying to be better than his opponents at that time. You wouldn't guess from reading the Gallic Wars that he's going to go on and, and do what Sarah suggested, which is, is take this role of king, which is anathema to the Romans, and try and run with it. I think also the fact that he's writing it down, and obviously it's been disseminated afterwards, otherwise we wouldn't have it. It's another way of standing alone by himself in power. He's, he's demonstrating that he is in charge of this army and he is in charge of this conquest and he is doing this by himself for Rome, obviously for Rome, not for, not for Caesar. But it is, it's a way of defining himself. So I think there's a connection there, but I think um, absolutely it's, it's about propaganda and it's about competing with Pompey and it's about all sorts of other things. Caesar's always looking for a way to define himself from the pack. He wants to stand all by himself and he does at, at the end of his life. He's the dictator for life. He has effectively made himself a king without using the word um, and he's assassinated for that. I suppose you should think about the different audiences that they're for as well. I mean, arguably, his written work is for people who can read that or, or I guess, can have someone re read it to them. And there are arguments about how much literacy there was at Rome, but it, it would be relatively low. So it's aimed mostly at an educated class, and you could say mostly at the Senate, perhaps. Whereas the triumph is for everybody. Everybody can come and look at this, of people of any status. And these symbols will be meaningful to them because it's not something in writing, it's not something you need an education to understand. You can see how glamorous and how, how amazingly opulent this ceremony is. So it's very important that Caesar transmits that message to the whole of Rome, which he does through his triumph, not really so much through his writings. Dr. Rhiannon Evans, lecturer in Ancient Mediterranean Studies at La Trobe University, and also Sarah Midford, a lecturer and PhD student in Classics at La Trobe University. You've been listening to Emperors of Rome, so if you like this podcast, subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, please leave us a review or share it with your friends. You can follow us all on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, Sarah is at Stripey Sarah, and I'm at Nightlight Guy. Join us for the next episode of Emperors of Rome, in which Julius Caesar takes power and civil war breaks out across the Roman Empire. Until then, I'm Matt Smith, you've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.